In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through 17, please stand for reading of the Word of God. When suffering comes to your house, there is hope. There is hope. Starting in verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their hearts, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is the word of God. Please be seated. As you know, the theme of 1 Peter is strength and comfort in suffering. Strength and comfort in suffering. Peter is, is enduring neuro-persecution. Now, in the midst of neuro-persecution, Peter encouraged Christians to realize one thing, or several things, but one thing in particular, that we are aliens and strangers here. We're just passing through. In, in, in chapter 2, verse 11, he says that we're aliens and strangers just passing through. Don't get too focused on here. Hey, we're going to be making our exit soon. We'll be in a place where everything will be right. And then while we're here, our conduct is important. And part of our conduct was abstaining from fleshly lust in 2.11. Our conduct while we're here, even when we're persecuted, impacts the culture. And then we talked about submission, that we're to submit to the government. As long as, the, even if they're Nero's, Peter's saying this in the face of Nero being the, the leader. But if the government tells us to do something contrary to the word of God, then we cannot, must not obey the government. And we talked about submission to masters and even the, the good ones, the gentle ones, and even the harsh ones, even those who are mean to you, we have to submit to them. And then we talked about husband and wives' roles, and we talked about wives submitting to your husbands, and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and we developed that. Then last week we talked about things that happen when you spend time with Jesus. And I hope you remember this, the things that happen when you spend time with Jesus. And number one was unity, unity within the body of Christ, unity within homes, that we may all be one. Remember Jesus' prayer in John 17, 22, that they may be one as we are one, united together, united together. And then the overflow of unity we found last week is that there's going to be compassion, love, tenderhearted. That was in chapter 3, verse 8. And we talked about how unity is so important within Christendom. And we gave the example of like trees being connected together in a forest. One tree might not have access to the sunlight, or one tree might not have access to water, but all the trees together produce this substance that allows them to benefit mutually because they're together, they're tied together, there's unity. And that was a, such a good illustration. I, I, I really like that. Remember, separation, isolation, is Satan's desire. He wants Christians to be isolated from the group because when you're isolated, you're not as strong. You're not as strong, and then you're more subject to the attacks that come your way. Isolated Christians, I will tell you, are not being obedient to Christ and generally grow colder and colder and colder as they separate from the body of Christ. That's usually a principle. Hebrews 10.25 tells us this, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another even more as we see the day approaching, even more as we see things getting worse and worse. Even though things are getting awful out there, we are to connect with one another, draw strength from one another, and draw strength from our Savior. 
In Proverbs 18.1, we mentioned this one, the man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment or all wise wisdom. Isolation is something that Satan wants and what God does not want for his people. Isolated Christians are disconnected, sidelined, soldiers out of action. Paul's encouragement, Paul's encouragement right to the end. You fight this fight. Finish strong. Stay connected to Christ and one another. 2 Timothy 3.7, this, this is a great verse. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And he just pours that out. We do not want to be separated from the body. Another sure sign, so unity is a, is a sign that you've been with Jesus, but another sure sign that we talked about last week, that we have a different tongue. We have a controlled tongue. Our speech changes. Our languages change. How we respond to situations changes. Jesus is our model, not the world. Remember, we are to act like Jesus act, to follow in, in his steps, to follow in his steps. We don't take the world's uh, view of language and response. And we use the illustration of the World Wrestling Federation, of people screaming at one another, or the United UFC, the, the, the fighters together, or, we, or the government tweeters. Every time something goes out, somebody tweets something hostile to somebody else. Those are not our examples. Our example is Jesus. Our eyes are on him. Now remember, when, our, when we walk in unity, when we walk with a controlled spirit or a controlled tongue, we, we, we really emphasize this, that the eyes of the Lord are then on you. And how precious that was. His eyes are on you to strengthen you in 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord range about the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He'll strengthen your heart. He will also provide for you. He'll protect you in, in, in Psalm 33.18. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. For those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. He will protect you. And then the eyes of the Lord are on those that are righteous. And he will hear your prayers. He will answer your prayers. Psalm 34, 15 says this. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to our cry. When God's eyes are on you, you have his favor. And he hears you. And he intervenes. He strengthens you. He protects you. He hears you. What a blessing. What a blessing. Now, this week, when suffering comes to your house, now guess what? It will come to your house. You've been on earth. You know. There is hope. There is hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to study the precious word of God. Lord, this word truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It directs our steps, gives us, gives us the way to live while we're here. And when we follow your precepts and your teachings, we are so much better off. So Holy Spirit, teach us today things that you want us to learn and then help us to apply them. In Jesus' name, amen. So think about it. Suffering for Christ is normal throughout the majority of the world. In the United States, it's not normal. If somebody criticizes you or something, you're crushed, okay? Just think about people giving up their lives, giving up their livelihoods, giving up everything to follow the master. That's what the rest of the world does. Remember, the theme of 1 Peter is strength and comfort and suffering. Now, our immediate response, and we need to be honest about this. When suffering comes to your house, what is your immediate response when you suffer? Now, I'll tell you, this is the truth. Who wants to suffer? Raise your hand. No, not me. Okay, not me. That's, that's, that's the truth, isn't it? That's the truth. Now, there was a song 
In the 70s, it goes, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Well, suffering. suffering. We feel this. Suffering. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. That is not true. That is not true. And we will develop this in just a second because we learn much in suffering. But if the truth to be told, we are reluctant sufferers. Reluctant sufferers. You know this? Suffering can be self-induced. You realize that, don't you? How many times has that happened to us? Self-induced. Happens all the time. We make poor, pitiful, sinful choices. And then suffering will be inevitable. Remember, you reap what you sow, you reap later, and you reap greater. You can sow the wind and reap the whirlwind in Hosea 8, 7. And Numbers 20, 32, 23 says this, Your sin will find you out. There will be consequences, and you will suffer for what you have done. F.B. Meyer puts it this way, This is the bitterest of all, to know that suffering need not have been, that it has resulted from indiscretion and inconsistency, that it is the harvest of one's own sowing, that the vulture which feeds on the vitals is a nestling of one's own rearing. Ah me, this is pain. I cause this. Ah. Then there is suffering for a cause or suffering for Christ. John Stott says this, talking about Diedrich Bonhoeffer, someone we've talked about many, many times, in the true church. The true church. There's a true church and there's a false church. A true church in Nazi Germany stood up against Hitler, was a voice for reason, as a, as a vast, vast majority capitulated to Hitler. There was an underground church, a true church that stood. Bonhoeffer was one of its leaders. John Stott says this, Few men of this century have understood better the inevitability of suffering than Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He seems never to have wavered in his Christian antagonism to the Nazi regime, although it meant for him imprisonment, torture, danger to his home family, and finally death. He was executed under the order of Heimlich Himmler in April 1945. Now, just in case you don't know this, this is just a few weeks before liberation. A few weeks before liberation. He was in a Flossberg concentration camp. It was a fulfillment of what he had always believed and taught. Suffering, then, is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means passio passiva. Suffering because we have to suffer. That is why Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. This is not what you hear most Sunday mornings. You will not hear this. This is not popular, but it is true. And especially for the majority of the world, the majority of the world, this century, the 21st, 20th and 20th, last part of the 20th and first part of the 21st century, there are more martyrs than at any other time in the church age. That's to put it in perspective. We don't know. We're insulated from that. But that is the truth of what's going on. So the true church is birthed in suffering. The false church crumbles, renounces prior beliefs, goes through religious ritual like they did in Nazi Germany, uses God talk and Jesus speak, feigns allegiance to Christ and caves to the pressure to conform, to be like everybody else. In our own country, all is not well in America. America is suffering the consequences of abandoning God and the church, and the church is compromised. We are now living in the Isaiah chapter 5 phase of America where we see this. 
Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. This is Isaiah 5.20. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitterness. The culture has been deceived in the time of Isaiah and it's deceived today. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight, who are self-absorbed. Woe to mighty men at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. That culture at that time was numbed by substances. What is it today? It's going to be more numbed as marijuana gets more legalized. This is not something from God, folks. This legalization. This is a deteriorating culture that we're living in. We must realize what's happening around us. Everything is twisted. Everything is turned. With the social and moral collapse today, we see church after church, denomination after denomination, surrender to the siren call of the culture. To compromise, to be relevant. In Peter's world, it was the same way. Compromise to narrow and you can live. And it's growing more and more that way in our world today. Allegiance to Christ and you will be persecuted. You may even die for your faith. Now, when suffering comes, let's be honest. We often respond with, why, Lord? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening now? Now, this is, let's just be honest. I thought you were bigger than this. God, did you not see where I was? You didn't get to me in time. I never thought this would happen to me. Remember, suffering always happens to somebody else, but not to you. It comes to your house. When suffering comes to the believer, it is important to know how to respond. We're going to learn that today. Pick it up in verse 13. When suffering comes to your home, now this is a principle. Usually good things happen to good people, and it's a general principle that is true, but not always. Verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Great question. Who is he who will harm you? Generally, when we treat people nicely, they treat us nicely, generally speaking. However, knowing, loving, and serving God does not insulate us from the unfair treatment of the world and even death, and even death. The persecuted church is an example of this. Unfair treatment can occur out of nowhere. You realize that. You can be going to the store, and all of a sudden you've been treated unfairly. You can go to a restaurant, treated unfairly. It can happen at your job. It can happen on teams and churches. It can happen in your extended family. It can happen any place that you come in contact with humans. Unfair treatment can happen even if you are eager to do good. Even if you are eager to do good. It's part of living in a fallen world, folks. Even to good people, unfairness happens all the time. Be ready. Verse 14, when suffering comes to your home, consider yourself blessed. What? What are you saying? What do you mean by that? Well, I'll tell you, this is the antithesis of what you hear today throughout the Western church. Blessed is this, health, wealth, easy street, my plane, my jet. We have people now wanting bigger planes and bigger jets. My mansions, that's always a good thing to have. My whatever I want, okay? Let's see what it says here in verse 14. But even if, if you suffer, not if is a fourth class. I don't know if this means anything to you, but it's a fourth class condition of if, meaning that it's probably not going to happen, but could happen. Even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, 
you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Let me say that again. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. As you become more on fire for Jesus, there will become more criticism coming your way and more threats. Do not be afraid of their threats. Do not be troubled. You're on the winning side. You're on the winning side. Remember James chapter 1, verse 2. It's tough, but it is true. Tough, but it is true. My brethren, count it all joy. Doesn't, don't you get a little pause here? Count it all joy when, you, when, when your ship comes in. Count it all joy when everything is wonderful and great and terrific and wonderful. No, it says count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And remember that word various was pokleos when we went through our teaching in James. It's like polka dots, different shapes, different sizes all the time. You have to be ready for it. Why? Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith, the dokimos, the testing, are you genuine or not? Are you genuine or not? That's what's being tested. The testing of your faith produces something. It produces patience with those circumstances. Oh, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. You are going to look more and more like Jesus. That's the goal. That's our goal of being here, looking more like Christ and less like us. Remember, in Hebrews 12, too, we have an interesting, interesting verse. And it says this about Jesus. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Endured the cross. And it's suffering. Now he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Now he's our high priest. But for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and now he's sitting down at the right hand of God. Joy. Joy. Important. Now listen. Hear this statement. Process it. There are no baby self-centered believers in suffering or that suffer that are blessed. Let that pause for just a second. Sink in. Well, remember, blessed is markarios, fully satisfied. Baby Christians do not suffer fully satisfied. Baby Christians resist the process. Resist it. And that, you know, let's face it, we, we do this. This is part of all of our walk. You must work through this. Markarios, fully satisfied. Only mature, totally given over to Jesus, are truly blessed in suffering. Are fully satisfied. Why? Because of what it produces. What it produces. Perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Maturity. Change. We're changed. Look at your life. Look at the places where you've grown. You have grown in the valley of suffering. That's what happens to it. It's unfortunate humans have to be this way. But if you do some introspection, that's where we have changed. The result of drawing strength from Jesus is perfect, complete, lacking nothing. It's supernatural. Things that happen when you draw strength from Jesus, it's supernatural. You can't just say, okay, I'm fully satisfied with this suffering. Oh, goody. No, it has to be spending time with Christ, growing in Christ, and knowing that he's changing you in this process. As arduous and as miserable as it is. There's good in it. Remember, God's goal for you is maturity, not happiness and ease. Oh, don't you just want me to be happy, Lord? Happy, happy, happy. He wants you to be joyful. Big difference between joy and happy. Happiness is, is, is predicated on your situation. Joy is I, I have an abundantly, 
outward joyfulness towards God no matter what's happening to me. The truth is this, happiness and ease one day will come when we're no longer here. Okay, that will come one day. But in the fallen world, happiness and ease is not the Christian future, generally speaking. God's word to you in overt persecution, when it comes like it does in most of the world, do not be afraid of their threats. And this is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Even if everyone is against you, everyone is against you, the God of armies is with you. Do not walk in fear. Jehovah Sabaoth, the God of armies, is with you. Now listen, a characteristic of a believer drawing strength from Jesus is no fear. How many times in Scripture have we heard, fear not, fear not, fear not? God's constant call to us is fear not, fear not. Some people have said there's 365 fear nots in the Bible, and there may be. But there are 80 of them that actually have to do with don't fear the situation, trust God. That's still a lot. 80 encouragements. Don't fear what's going on in your life. Don't fear when the bump comes. Don't fear when the job situation comes. Don't fear. Walk in faith. Walk in faith. The righteous shall live by faith. We walk by faith and not, and not by sight. We will trust our God until we die. That is where we live. Fear not. That's Jesus' constant call to his disciples when the boat's sinking. Why are you guys afraid? Consider yourself blessed when suffering comes to your house. It is the opposite of the way that we view suffering. But it can be a blessing to us if we learn, if we learn and turn to our God. Verse 15, when suffering comes to your house, in a hostile world, defend the faith and live with hope. In a hostile world, defend the faith and live with hope. Verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart. That's a requirement. You want to make it through this thing. You have to set apart God into your heart. More on this in just a second. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always, always be ready to give a defense, an apologia, to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear, or the NIV says gentleness and respect. That is how we always address people. Now, when we're talking about defending the faith in a hostile world, our usual response is like Job's friends. When you see somebody suffering, our usual response is this, what did you do? I wonder what they did. Hmm. You know, don't go there. We all are qualified. You know, people used to say, New Orleans deserved Katrina because it's so evil. Oh, really? Oh, really? We're all depraved. I mean, that hurricane could have landed right on my house. We all deserve it. We all deserve it. So don't go down that road. Look at when threats and troubles come, our defense is Jesus. And our job, a survival must, is this sanctify the Lord God in your heart. You want to make it through this? He has to be set apart in your heart, He has to be the number one priority and draw strength from Him. When hostility comes, when persecution comes, when suffering comes, Jesus must be supreme in your heart, set apart unto, unto him. You must be set apart unto him. If a person's heart is not set apart unto Jesus, if it is set apart un, un, unto worldly things or earthly things, if it is double-minded, part in God and part in the world, watch what happens. You are consumed with your possessions, 
your happiness, pleasure, ease, comfort. These are all flesh things. And then you are most vulnerable when the trouble comes. The most vulnerable when the trouble comes. Why? Because you have no base. You have no base to stand on. Who is our base? It is the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that we build our lives on. When trouble comes, the ones that build their houses on the sand are the ones that crumble. Hear this. Hear the words of Jesus. Now he's talking about the last one in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. And he finishes with this illustration. And remember, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew, are talking about how to live kingdom lives while we're here. How do we live in this, in this world as kingdom believers, as kingdom followers? And he says these words in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. He gives two houses. Both houses look exactly the same. Both houses look great and wonderful. But, oh, their foundations, their foundations, what they are built on, are completely different. Watch it. Therefore, when it, whoever hears these, these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, the stable foundation. Now look at, watch what comes. It comes in every life. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. All the troubles of life beat on this house, beat on this house, beat on this house. Impossible to stand, but it was on the rock, the Lord Jesus. And it did not fall. It did not cave. These are the Diedrich Bonhoeffers. These are the people that endure persecution. These are the Chinese people that we gave the illustration years ago, or a year or so ago, where they came out of the school, and you had to stomp on that cross, or you would die. And the, little, and the first one goes out and stomps on it. The second one goes out and stomps on it. The third one goes out and stomps on it. And this little girl goes out and goes, no, I will not do that. And she's killed for her faith. And the rest of them saw that, and they walked out. And they walked onto that cross, and they did not stomp on that cross. They stood. Their, their lives were built on the rock. The only way you can do that in those situations is have your life on the rock. It doesn't. Christian platitudes won't do it. You must be built on the rock. Watch conversely. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Oh, look good. Sandcastle Christianity is all around us. Looks good. But watch this. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Folks, in order for your life not to fall apart, you must be built on the rock. Sanctify Christ in your hearts. He is your solid foundation. Then, then, and only then, when suffering comes with a solid foundation, be ready to give a defense. This, this, is, this verse is not a witnessing verse as far as knocking on doors and that sort of thing. This verse is a life verse that has to do with how you're going through the trials of life. And then you are able to give a defense for what you believe. That's what the verse is talking about. Then be ready to give a defense, an apologia for the hope that is in you. Now, let me say something about hope. It is the earnest expectation of something good. I don't know how. It's the Romans 8, 28. All things work for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That is a true statement. 
It doesn't say everything is good. It doesn't say everything is wonderful. It says everything God will work for good. That's what the promise is. It's the earnest expectation that something good will happen. And notice this, that in the midst of your suffering, when you're at your lowest point and the arrows are coming at you, and shield of faith, shield of faith, shield of faith, blocking the enemy's arrows that are coming at you. Is that the time when you feel most hip, hip, hooray to give a defense of the faith? No, no. That's why it says, always be ready in suffering, in turmoil, when you feel like it, when you don't feel like it, when it's convenient, when it's inconvenient, be ready to defend the faith. To somebody who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Now, this is important. Be ready. The Holy Spirit is the author of these encounters, not you. Hear that. The Holy Spirit. Have your eyes open. He'll bring you encounters. Remember, Henry Blackaby in his, in his book, Knowing God, says this. We are to join God where he is working. That's the principle. That's the principle. The Holy Spirit encounters can happen when you least expect it. So be ready. Be ready. I remember working long hours. Tired. We're doing these surgeries, and, and 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 all of a sudden, somebody pops up in the operating room and asks a question. What do you think about this that happened? And I'm going, ah, oh, I'm tired. I don't want to get into this discussion right now. And Lord, what? Okay, this is to be ready in season and out of season. Be ready. You have to. He he chooses the times, not us. Alan Stibb says this. And this is kind of interesting. He says this. We have here some practical guidance concerning our Christian witness. It is wrong to always be preaching at people. The Christian wife has been encouraged by Peter to seek and win her unbelieving husband without speaking to him in, in, in 1 Peter 3.1. But the whole situation has changed. Now, don't use this as an excuse not to engage your culture. The whole situation has changed if, if the other person asks for an explanation. And Christians must be on the alert that they may often rightly discern an implied question. Always be ready. What are we talking about? When someone cracks the door, what do we do with our foot? We go, mm, we get our foot in here. Mm, mm, mm. We give ready to give a defense for our faith. But make sure it's Holy Spirit-led. It's Holy Spirit-led. That there is a time to speak as God readies us. The Christian is to, be, is to engage not in an aggressive attack, on the other hand, the person's will or attacking the person's will or prejudice, but in a logical account or reason explanation of the hope that is in him, with meekness and gentleness, or or meekness and fear, or gentleness and respect, as it says in the NIV. Seldom, seldom will there be more opportune time to share about God than when you are suffering and glorifying God through it. We of all people have hope. In a world that is hostile to Christ, who question the validity of your faith and the, the validity of your Jesus more and more, always be ready to defend the faith. Tell people about the hope that Jesus brings, the earnest expectation of something good. There's no greater hope giver than Jesus. The earnest expectation of something good. You get connected to him. The, there's the earnest expectation that something good is going to happen in my life. Verse 16 and 17, and then we'll be finished. When suffering comes to your home, when defamed, allow your conduct 
to defend you. Now, when I say conduct, it's the Philippians 127, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this is not so easy when you're defamed. When your character is impugned, when someone has done something to you, it is very hard to walk this out. But we are called to do this. Verse 16 and 17, having a good conscience, that's usually a good conscience towards God, I did what was right in his sight, that when they defame you as evildoers, and notice it is when they defame you. It's not if they defame you, it's when they defame you as evildoers. Those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Let's develop this just a little bit. When you have been defamed, when your integrity has been questioned, remember we are representing Christ. He is our Savior. We are his ambassadors. Remember in 2 Corinthians 5.20, as though Christ were making his appeal through us. We are his ambassadors. When your integrity is attacked, your defense is good conduct. Good conduct. And how you act, how you act when attacked is important. People are watching your response particularly if you have been vociferous about being a Christian. I've told everybody about Jesus that I can. I've, I've tried to do an appropriate witness, and then something happens that makes me want to rebel against every, everything in my body wants to be repulsed by what is going on. I must conduct myself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Remember whom you are representing. Remember whom you are representing. Do not respond with evil for evil or reviling for reviling. When unjustly attacked, when your integrity is impugned, when everything screams retaliate, we are to conduct ourselves like Jesus, that our accusers may be ashamed. The principle of this, I've mentioned this before, our witness is more important than our egos, than paying back, getting even, or being even being right. The Jesus example is great. It's a wonderful example. Remember the first cry, I don't know if you know that, but the first cry from the cross, Jesus is being crucified, and the first thing he yells out, there's seven cries, and the first one is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was being reviled. You talk about reviled, defamed, integrity impugned. The God who created heavens and the earth is being hung on a cross, naked, embarrassed before the whole world, his mother standing there. That is the, the epitome of defamation. When your integrity is attacked, your defense is your good conduct. Do not respond evil for evil. Act like Jesus. Follow the principles. Jesus' example, Father, forgive them. How could Jesus do this? Remember, on the cross, it's, it's his humanity that is, being, that is suffering. He's taking all the sins of the world. He said, Father, forgive them. Up to this point, he forgave sins. But on the cross, he says, Father, you forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He didn't say, I forgive you, because he's hanging there as a representation of humanity. And he's dying in our stead. He's dying in our place. And he says that statement. And the only way that Jesus could do that he spent time with Father. He spent time with Father in Gethsemane when he was pleading, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. 
That has to be our attitude in suffering. Not my will, but your will, God. When we spend time with Jesus, we gain the strength to do this. I want to give you an example. If you would, if you, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 22.6. Turn to Psalm 22.6. I want to show you something that was written centuries, centuries before Jesus died on the cross. This is before crucifixion was known. And watch what happens here. You talk about defamed. You talk about integrity impugned. If you just pick it up in chapter, Psalm 22, verse 6, the whole chapter is about the crucifixion. But just a few excerpts from this. In 22.6, he says, But I am a worm, a tola, giving up his life, and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. This is what Jesus is feeling centuries before it happens on the cross. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Now, if you remember in Luke, I don't know if you remember this, but I'll just remind you. In Luke, we have, in Luke 23, 36, the soldiers mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, oh, save yourself, Jesus. Say, if, this, if you're really who you say you are, save yourself. This, this was prophesied way beforehand. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And in verse 12, skip to verse 12. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. You know what this is a picture of? This is a picture of the demonic realm hurling cursing insults and the humans that are influenced by the demons cursing insults at Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. These bulls have surrounded me, mocking him, cursing, taunting him. They gape at me with their mouths. Like a raging and roaring lion, which is whom? Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. This is what Jesus has experienced. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. That means his heart is failing. His breath is waning. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. Remember the fifth cry? I thirst. It's going right back to this. It's going right back to this. You have brought me to the dust of the death, the creator of every lake, the creator of every stream, the creator of all the massive underground water supplies on the world is dying on the cross for thirst. For thirst. For dogs have surrounded me. These are the Gentiles. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. They count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. In Luke 23, 34, they divided the garments, just like it was prophesied. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now look at our cry when defamed. Our cry when defamed. Our cry when our integrity is impugned. It is impugned. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Isn't that our cry? Oh, don't be far from me, God, because I feel like you're not there. Remember Job, if I turn to the east, you're not there. If I turn to the west, I turn, if I turn all around, you're not there. Then he says, but I know where you will find me. My God is there. Oh, my strength, hasten, hasten to help me. Remember, God is our strength. Our cry when defamed, our integrity impugned, God is our strength. 
in the crucible of being defamed and suffering, unfair treatment. Others are watching your response. You don't even have to say a word. Folks, this is a non-verbal apologia. When they are watching your life, now look, you might be churning inside that they can't see, okay? But we represent somebody that is much greater than us. And they have to see more of Jesus than they see of me. A nonverbal apologia. That it's all real, that Jesus is real. He really makes a difference in a life. He really makes a difference. Now look at when crucifixion was all over, hear the words of a Roman centurion who observed Jesus, was affected by Jesus' nonverbal apologia as he died on the cross. Watch what he says in Matthew 27, 54. So when the centurion and those with them, remember a centurion had, had charge of 100 guys. Now, I'm not saying there's 100 guys there, but he had a bunch of them that were at the cross guarding Jesus. Who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened that day, the whole earth went dark. All the cries of the cross, Everything being carried out as planned by Father for the sacrifice of a son, fulfilling all Old Testament prophecy, that he would be hung between two thieves, that he would be pierced in his side, that he would be nailed to the tree, that they would gamble for his clothes, that he'd have a crown of thorns on his all orchestrated by God, fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. All the things that happened that they feared greatly, saying, truly, this is the Son of God. Jesus dying proved this man that this person, this, this is the Son of God. May our witness pave the way for someone else's salvation. When defamed, allow your conduct to defend you. Conclusion. When suffering comes to your home, remember there's always hope. When suffering comes to your house, and it will come, there is hope. There is hope. All humans suffer. It is part of life in a fallen world. Physical deterioration is happening. Guess what? Maybe you don't realize it just yet, but it is happening. It is accelerating as you go on. People get flus. People get colds. People get injuries. People get illnesses. People get diseases, tumors. It's all part of the curse. Money cannot exempt you from this. Position cannot exempt you from this. Hiding cannot exempt you from this. Being off the grid cannot protect you from this. Nothing exempts you from suffering. It's part of the human experience. In truth, our hearts cry when we say suffering, what is it good for? We know not absolutely nothing. We know that it is producing something. We know that suffering changes us. As James says in the trials, the testing of your faith produces patience that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Oh, isn't that what, what we want to do? Cooperate with Jesus and being complete, not fragmented here, complete, whole, shalom. That's what shalom is. Shalom isn't just a, an absence of, uh, of turmoil in your life. It's part of that. But it's this wholeness. It's this completeness. It's this fully immersed in God. That no matter what happens to me, I can live in total contentment because I know my God is with me through the whole thing. I'll take you right through the valley of the shadow of death, which each one of us will go through one day. 
Remember that. God's goal for you is change. More and more like Jesus and less like you. It's transformation. It is the crucible of suffering for Christ that we are to defend the faith. It is in the crucible of suffering for Christ that we are to defend the faith, to bring out and tell people about the hope. You'd be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you, that the world may know that you have been with Jesus, and he changes lives. He does. He changes lives. Even in suffering, we have hope, folks, the earnest expectation of something good, an opportunity to give a defense for the faith. I want to close with this verse, Romans 15, 13. This is in the NIV. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. How much joy? All joy and what peace? How as you trust in him. I should have wrote key, trust in him. So that you may overflow with hope. This isn't some little trickly hope. This isn't a little ditzy, little bitsy, teensy, weensy, itsy, bitsy hope. This is overflow with hope. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit that is in you, the dunamis power, the capable, able power that is, in me, that is in you. Folks, we serve a God of hope. We serve an awesome God. I mean, we say our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. We mean it. That word awesome, to me, is exclusive for him. It's not an awesome baseball game, or that's an awesome this or an awesome that. Awesome is exclusively in my vocabulary for him. We serve an awesome God. And the only way we can make it through this thing is sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Stay connected to Jesus, our hope. When suffering comes to your home, never, ever, ever forget there is hope. The earnest expectation of something good. Selah. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. and. Holy Spirit, you are in this place today. You've spoken to each one of our hearts. We know the reality of what it is to be here. You can't be more than five days old before you know that suffering is coming into your life some way, somehow. There's a reality to this, but there's also the reality that we serve a God of hope. We do have the earnest expectation that something good is going to happen. Lord, we trust you no matter what. We trust you through the fires. We trust you through the floods. We trust you through the valleys. We trust you at every aspect of our lives. You are our God. You are our refuge and strength. You are an ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear anything that comes at us in the future because we serve an awesome God, a God that loves us and cares for us. The eyes of the Lord range about the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Thank you for this time that you've given us to study the precious word of God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.